0: This is a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. Good morning, everyone. Great to have you uh, with us. and It's great to be back after a little sneaky week off after uh, Easter as well. Uh, I don't know about you, but I and we as a church are still riding the high of Easter, uh, particularly Resurrection Sunday, uh, the great and the beautiful truth that we serve a living God, a God who has conquered sin and death uh, and was raised to life again uh, on the third day. And so we felt uh, as a pastoral team that we can't just contain that good. News Using that truth to Easter Sunday. Um, So, we're in a mini series if you're joining us uh, called Aftermath. And we're just exploring what happens in the wake of Jesus' resurrection. And there's some great stuff, uh, isn't there? Last week on the road to to Emmaus, Jesus revealing that he is the fulfillment of Scripture. Uh, Next week, we'll look at the fact that the resurrection of Jesus really does pave the way for the birth of the church. We'll look at some of the great theological truths that that kind of come out of Jesus' resurrection from the dead as well. Uh, But this morning, I want to look at something a little more personal. A little more relational, because uh, it's not just the big stuff that happens in the wake of Jesus' resurrection, is there? Uh, but relationally, particularly for a guy by the name of Peter, he is really interested and it's really high value for him to know what happens with him after Jesus has been raised from the dead. So if you have your Bibles, physical or digital, I encourage you to open them up. We are in John chapter 21, beautiful passage of Scripture. But we do need to give a little bit of context. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with the story or you've forgotten, let me take you um, back there. Uh, Let me take you back to that night, that moment just before Good Friday where Jesus has been betrayed, he's been arrested, he's been carried off, and there's an absolute mockery and sham of a trial going on by uh, Jewish religious leaders. Uh, And Peter, this is John uh, chapter 18, where we we read of this. Uh, So he's following along, and he's in the courtyard, in the high priest's courtyard, where they've taken Jesus. Uh, And we read this three times, he denies knowing, being a follower of Jesus. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. Uh, The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty, and there brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, she asked Peter. He replied, I am not. That is cold. After the three years of seeing everything that he's seen, of journeying, of being with, in deepest relationship with Jesus, are you one of his disciples? I am not, he says. They lit a fire and Peter hang around there warming himself. Later on, we read that Simon Peter, while he was still there warming himself, um, they asked him once again, hang on a minute, we kind of recognize you. Aren't you one of his disciples too? He denied it, saying, I am not. Then one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? And again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster Began to crow. You know, Luke adds in a much more brutal detail of the denial of Peter. Luke chapter 22. Just as he was speaking, I do not even know this man, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the words the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. This is a really significant moment in the life of the Apostle Peter. Just as it would be in the life of you and I if we were in his shoes. This is, without a shadow of a doubt, a massive failure. Uh, He's blown it, he's stuffed it, he knows it, Jesus knows it, and he feels it. And so he retreats to weep bitterly by himself. You know, just hours before, he had said to Jesus, Lord, if everybody turns away from you, I will never, I could never, there's no way I would ever deny you. And within hours, here he is, at a simple line of questioning, simple line of inquiry, denying even being a disciple, denying even knowing Jesus, this is a rough moment in his life. And the reason I find John chapter 21, which we'll get to in a second, just so (laughs) encouraging, and I really believe it's going to bless you um, this morning, is because we've all been there. Maybe not around a fire where a high priest servant is asking us if we're a disciple of Jesus, but we know what it is to stuff up. We know what it is to blow it. We know what it is to do the very things that we say we would never do or to not do the very things that we said and promised that we would, of course, always do. We know what it is to go, "Geez, I would love to go back in time and and have that over again. I wish I could rewind the tape and have a second go. And we all know what it is to have something be part of our history and to be part of our story now and go, I can't believe that that is now part of my history. Are you with me? Or is it just this guy up here who has consistently failed? Look, honestly, uh, I mean, I continue to, obviously, not live up perfectly to the calling on my life and what it means to follow Jesus. uh, There's a great phrase by a favorite preacher of mine. He says, I continue to sin in ways that shock and surprise me. And there have been times in my life where I felt like Peter, like that was the moment where I blew it, where it was an absolute magnificent stuff up of incredible order. And so if you're like me and you've had that experience, you know what it is to actually feel, to feel the weight of that and to go, I don't know where to go from here. I don't know what to do in light of this. Who I thought I was, I clearly am not because I did that thing. And, well, that doesn't speak very well of what I thought I was about. And so I imagine for Peter, in this kind of the aftermath of his, his denial, he's sitting there and he's like, well, is this it? Is Is God done with me? Could God ever forgive me? And if he does, could he ever restore me, use me? Or maybe he's sitting there thinking, well, do I even want to if God does call me? Because I have that fear that I'll fail him and I'll fall short once again. By the time we get to John chapter 21, Peter has seen Jesus two times in groups. And so he knows that Jesus is raised to newness of life. He knows that the victory has been won. And Jesus has given the guys very clear instructions that they are to stay and they are to wait for what was promised, the Holy Spirit. And so Peter knows that there is this next movement in the story of God coming. That this next kind of ministry season is about to open up when the Holy Spirit comes on them. And so this, John chapter 21, happens probably in about the month in between that time where he sees Jesus with Thomas, uh, and when the the Spirit is given at at Pentecost. And so he knows this is coming, but we have no indication in the text, and I suspect from John chapter 21, the answer is no, that he and Jesus haven't had a one-on-one about those three denials. And so he's probably sitting there with all of those questions, with all of that guilt, with all of that shame, with all of that fear, and that sense of, I don't know if I can be part of this next thing because... Look at the kind of guy I am. I've blown it. I've blown it. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon, Peter, Thomas, who's also called Didymus, Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, said Peter. And they went with him. You know, if you have ever had that experience where you've stuffed it, where you've blown it, there is something about the familiar that becomes very attractive, isn't it? You look back a little bit to your, to your old life, to your old patterns, to things that would be a little bit easier, that things that required a little less faith maybe, a little less obedience, maybe a little less risk, and there's something that's comforting and attractive about that. Is anybody a fisherman in the room? A couple of people? You don't need to be embarrassed about that. It's it's a valid recreational activity. Um, I haven't fished for, yeah, oh, now, yeah, now we're getting some hands. All right, come on. They were like, where are you going with this pasta? Um, uh, no, I remember. I haven't fished for many of years, but uh, some of my fondest memories are uh, fishing with my mates in, in the kind of, a couple of years after school. Uh, we lived down at Canberra at the time, and one of my mates, he bought this uh, $900, I don't even know what it was, like old Mazda station wagon or something like that, absolute piece. But anyways, we uh, remember like loading it up with all the fishing rods and kind of from Canberra all the way down to the south coast, and... Uh, We'd take the tent and we'd take the esky and we'd fill it full of steaks because we had no intention of probably relying on our ability to catch fish. Uh, And we used to go down and it was fun. It was something that we did for fun. It was recreation. It was about the experience. It was about the memories. It was about hanging out together uh, as friends. I remember one year, because we were also dipping our toe in the water of, of fly fishing, uh, and so one year we're up the Snowy Mountains, the very first weekend that the season opens because it closes to give the fish a chance to breed. Uh, so long weekend of October, we jump in this car with our youth partner, we, uh, we head up to the Snowy Mountains, get out of the car start getting everything ready and it starts snowing. <laughs> I remember feeling my fingers feeling so cold I couldn't tie the knots uh, in the fishing line. Um, but it's not what it was about. It was, it was about fun, it was about making memories, it was about recreation. Now, fishing for Peter has a very different meaning, doesn't it? Uh, now, most pers- people in the first century aren't recreational fishers anyway, but for Peter in particular, this is his old life where was peter and what was he doing when jesus called him to follow him fishing he was to all intents and purposes a small-scale small business commercial fisherman a laborer if you like on a fishing vessel and it was hard work fishing in the sea of galilee in the first century you didn't stand on the water's edge with your soft drink in hand and you know a little little lure going in and out while you chatted with your mates Uh, It was physical activity that happened overnight. You used to jump on a boat, you used to prepare the nets, you used to go out, uh, because at night the fish would come back to the surface. And so all night you would throw these heavy nets in, let them sink, hoping to try and catch some fish in the nets, and then pull them in. These guys would have been fit. They would have been uh, fairly built from the activities. And you'd do that for hours and hours and hours, and then bring the fish back onto, onto, onto shore in order to sell. This was a business. This is Peter's old life. This is his old self. Uh, and the commentaries kind of vary on how we interpret this um, action here from Peter. Uh, some would see that this is Peter going, you know what, I'm done. I'm just going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to go back to my old life. I'm going to go back to fishing. I'm going to go back to the boats. After all, I've blown it. I can't be the apostle Peter, fisher of men, the rock on which Jesus builds his church, when I can't even say that I know the man. So maybe I'll go back being Peter the fisherman. I know what that is. I know how to be that in my community. Uh, others would say, that's maybe reading a little much into the text. Um, but, P- but Peter has very certainly been called to stay put and wait for the promised Holy Spirit. And this is definitely a shift towards the old life. So wherever he is on this scale, uh, for me and I think for most commentators, we see in this a significant move away from who God has called him to be and what God is calling him to be. He returns to the familiar, he returns to the comfortable, probably no doubt full of guilt and shame and all manner of questions around how God could possibly ever use him to be that person again in the future. And so we read the story, Simon Peter, even though he has denied Jesus three times, is still a leader of these disciples. And so having said, I'm going out to fish, they say, we'll go with you, Peter. And so they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Is there any uh, thing that you do really repetitively that gives you time to really think? Uh, for me, mowing is one of those things. I don't know why or what it is about mowing, but when I'm out mowing, it's like I'm doing something, it's physical activity, I obviously have to concentrate a bit, but it's not, that doesn't demand that much concentration, so I find myself thinking and reflecting. Did a couple of years of archery, same thing as well, getting the zen kind of moment of just letting the arrows fly and your brain sits there and it thinks about all these things. Fishing definitely is one of those activities. And I wonder for Peter, is he's out there at night throwing the nets, dragging them back up, nothing. All right, let's throw them again. Wait, 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 drag them back in, nothing. That he has a lot of time to think for himself. And it's not in the text, but I like to think that under the cover of darkness, even though he's surrounded by his mates, even though he is, you know, this Mediterranean burly fisherman, that he might be out there in the cover of darkness shedding a few tears about what could have been, about what might have been, about his longing and his desire to go back in time and take it all back. And wrestling with those questions, I do wonder for Peter if he thinks maybe actually this is the life I now deserve. Maybe I don't deserve to be this person, this figure in the early church that everybody seems to think that I am. I've stuffed it. I've blown it. Fishing. Fishing is the life for me now. There is, of course, a nice little lesson there as well. Whenever we are operating outside the will of God... Well, it tends to be fairly fruitless and we come up empty-handed, don't we? So there might be just a nice little analogy and parallel there. That that night they caught nothing, and we tend to catch nothing, come up empty-handed when we operate out of that mindset. Well, the story goes on. Verse 4. Uh, early in the morning, so they've been fishing all night by this stage. Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Uh, we read they're about 100 yards off from shore. This is early in the morning. The light wouldn't have been that great. So there's a bit of a distance. They just see a figure on the shore. And he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? Uh, in the Greek, this has a little bit of a negative connotation. So he's, they're really saying, you haven't caught any fish, have you? Ouch, <laughs> that stings. These are professional fishermen. once. They've been out there for hours and hours. And they answer him, no, <laughs> we actually haven't caught any fish we had it all night, haven't caught any fish. And so Jesus says, well, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Uh-oh. <laughs> They've heard that before, haven't they? When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then John, the disciple who Jesus loved, said to Peter, it's It's the Lord. It's Jesus. And assuming Simon Peter heard this, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he'd taken it off to work, jumped in the water, and swam to shore to see Jesus. Uh, now you and I, when we jump in the water, we would normally take our outer garments off. <laughs> Peter puts them on, partly part of his enthusiasm, part of obviously that Jewish male modesty um, from the first century as well, wanting to get to the shore and interact with Jesus clothed. Um, but he would get there very wet <laughs> as well. And I love this movement of Simon Peter towards Jesus. Because even though I suspect in his mind, standing on that boat in the middle of the darkness, pulling in net after net after net, empty, 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 he thought to himself, this is what I actually deserve. This is probably where I deserve to be. This is the kind of experience I probably deserve to be having. But his desire was still to be with Jesus. And so the moment that Jesus turns up, he's off that boat and he is swimming as fast as he can. Can't wait for the guys to drag the boat in a hundred yards. He swims to be with Jesus. What he deserved, what he desired. Even in his failings, even in the questions, even in the guilt and the shame, his desire was to be with Jesus. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, they were not far from the shore, about 100 yards. And we, uh, we hear that it was a lot of fish, 153 to be uh, exact. And the commentators have an absolute field day on the significance of that number. So if you have some spare time during this week, feel free to have a look into that because it's, uh, uh, it's pretty encouraging. Uh, as a fisherman, I suspect that that fisherman... know what their largest catch was. Let's just say that way. Ever ask a fisherman what was their biggest flathead they've ever caught? They'll tell you to the centimetre, maybe even to the centimetre and a half. Uh, These guys knew exactly the size of the catch that they'd had. But here we have this beautiful moment and this beautiful beautiful interaction between Jesus and Peter uh, that sets him up really well. There is, um, as, as we read, um, there's a beautiful thing happening on, on the shore. Jesus is effectively preparing and making them breakfast. And although he doesn't need anything from them, he invites them to contribute to it as well by contributing one of the fish that they've caught. Uh, and many commentators as well will celebrate, isn't this the kindness and loving just nature of our God? He doesn't need us for anything, Uh, he doesn't need us to reach the world, to transform the world, and yet he invites us to participate with what he is doing. And so Peter and the guys are able to participate to the breakfast that they then get to share in, Uh, and here is the interaction. Three times Jesus says to Peter, do you love me more than these? Speaking of the fish, not the other disciples. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. And so Jesus says, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord. May you know that I love you. And he's far in the Greek, both of those have been a particular kind of love. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of Jonah, do you Simon son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time. Peter knows exactly what Jesus is talking about. Jesus, uh, Peter knows exactly what the context that has given rise to this conversation is. Three denials, three questions by the shore of the Sea of Galilee. I do not even know him. Simon, do you love me? And so I'm Peter, he gets it. And although he says, yes, Lord, I love you, he knows that he's heart of hearts, that back then he wasn't acting as if he loved Jesus. Uh, but the very, very strong desire and commitment of his heart, the truth, the reality for Peter, is that he absolutely adored and loved his Savior. And so although he is hurt a third time, he still answers. Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. And so Jesus says once again, "Feed my sheep." Uh, it's a moment of confrontation. It's a moment of, of naming the history, but is also designed to restore Peter uh, to express once again that he still has a place in the good plan and purposes of God. In fact, the specific plan and purposes of God through Christ. Feed my sheep. It is an instruction about how he is going to be and how he is going to lead in the life of the early church. Yes, Peter has 100% blown it in that moment, but he has not blown it when it comes to his relationship with God, his calling, and in the good and perfect plans of God. And so Jesus here, once again, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, is recommissioning, if you like, is, is recalling Peter into a life of faith and following A life of impact for the kingdom of God. Uh, And next week, we're going to look at what happens after he preaches uh, his first sermon. And my goodness, does God still have his hand on this man? But Jesus does something else here that I think is really important. He um, foreshadows Peter's death, um, which sounds quite morbid. But if you're Peter, I reckon this is actually quite encouraging. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. There's a redemption moment. Although Peter may have all those questions, I've flaked out, I, I denied, when, it, when, it, when push came to shove, I, I, I crumbled, uh, and maybe he's got those questions, will, will I do that again? Will I repeat history into the future? Am I really somebody that the early church should look to to lead them? Am I really somebody that Jesus should trust with the mission and the message of the good news of God? Jesus will say, absolutely, Peter when the stakes are the absolute highest, when it's literally your life on the line, you won't deny me. You won't turn your back on the faith. You won't crumble, but you'll be martyred for the faith. That's how your life ends. And I imagine for Peter, as scary as that is, there is also something in him that goes, that's the kind of guy I wanna be about. Someone that has so much passion and so much conviction That even if my life is on the line, I'm still going to say yes to following Jesus. Saying yes to believing that the resurrection truly happened. For I saw it with my own eyes. And Peter spends the rest of his life proclaiming it to be true. And encouraging people to put their faith and their trust in Jesus. And so then Jesus simply says, follow me. Follow me. I think this is a beautifully redemptive story. I love following the character arc of Peter throughout the Gospels, seeing his passion, seeing his hot-headedness at times, seeing his confidence, seeing his failures, and seeing his restoration. There's something beautiful in it, and I don't want to undermine that by just layering on a whole bunch of teaching, but I would just like to add a few comments at the end. As I said at the beginning, I think all of us know what it is to have that sense of blown it, stuffed up. This time was that too far? Or was it one time too many? Could God possibly ever forgive me? Could God ever possibly use me? And maybe we feel that temptation, that attraction to return maybe to what's a bit more comfortable, what's a bit more familiar, that older pattern of life, and shrink back and try and hide from the things that God has called us into. I think Jesus' restoration of Peter by the shores of the Sea of Galilee is an invitation for us all to know that every morning God's mercies are renewed. That, so to speak, Jesus turns up at the shores of our life every day and says, how are you going? (laughs) Have you caught anything? What's the fruit in your life? And like Peter, my encouragement is to desire, above all, to be with Jesus. No matter the guilt, the shame, what you think other people say about you or think about you, what you say or think about yourself in light of some of those failings, recognize the invitation of Jesus is to come and to be with him to be healed and to be restored, to be to, for us to repent and get back on the right track. So I'm going to invite the worship team up, and we're just going to uh, finish our time together by responding with a beautiful song called "Oh, Come to the Altar." And it's an invitation. It's an invitation to any and all who find themselves today feeling a little bit like Peter, and maybe your sin, maybe that weakness maybe that sense of failure is super recent for you or maybe it's really 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 ancient and you can't help but shake that sense of guilt and shame and disconnect with God and fear that maybe I'm not the person that Jesus thinks I am Jesus is calling and he's inviting you to come back to restore fellowship and to know that with him all things are possible do you love me yes and get about the business that I've called you to do. Do you love me? Yes. And delight in being my child. Do you love me? Yes. Then know that there's forgiveness and mercy, redemption and restoration for you. This is the aftermath of Jesus' resurrection, a living God who offers forgiveness freely to all who come to him and place their faith and trust in him. I pray and I trust that that encourages you this morning. Maybe that invites you to draw near afresh this morning. Maybe it challenges you to actually name some of those things before God that you've been trying to run and hide from owning up. But do so in order to be restored.